listening to Rattle and Pedal, diversion thoughts on marketing and growing professional services firms. Your hosts are Jason Malicki and Jeff McKay. Hey, Jeff, have you ever seen one of the, maybe you've seen this in person. I think I have. Have you ever seen or a video of when they implode a building? Love those. That's, Aren't those that's the coolest almost thing like ever? It's satisfying as seeing them pop boils and oh, pimples. That sounds gross. <laughs> <laughs> You watch videos of that. Follow the craziness of social media. Yes, what's all what you can find on YouTube. But anyway, have you ever watched one of those and slowed it down in slow motion so you can watch the whole building implode systematically and very slowly and dramatically? I and just that, saw one of them destroying four nuclear reactor towers. Oh, really? Yeah. Wow. That's interesting. Okay, but cyber. So my question is, do you feel like you're watching one of those videos in slow motion as you're watching this EY deal dissolve? And are you are we watching EY sort of implode in slow motion? Boy, I didn't think you were going to go there. <laughs> <laughs> Life has kind of become that way. Not just EY. There's, there's so many of these behind the headline stories that look like those slow motion building implosions. Building implosions. <laughs> everything, <laughs> everything comes back to that, that, that slow motion implosion. So to, to set up the topic for today, we are doing behind the headlines. And I wanted to start with kind of the, the cancellation of this EY split, which has actually been, this isn't necessarily new news. It's probably a couple of weeks since they, they first announced that the split that we talked about in our very first episode on this wasn't going to happen. And there's been multiple articles since that happened that I think we can point to about why, I don't know, you have a better hand on this than I do. Do you want to talk about what happened? Can I explain it real quick? Like maybe backstory again on what they were trying to do and then what happened. And then we can talk about maybe why it matters. Sure. Ian Y came up with the brilliant idea of selling off its consulting arm. Never heard of that concept before. Yeah, no, no one's ever done that before. <laughs> And we discussed it. I don't know if we've discussed it once or twice or how many times we've, we've talked about that, but yeah. they were building consensus and voting on the sale of the consulting arm. There were some complications due to, to the deal based on the rising interest rates and deteriorating business conditions. They kind of put the deal at risk. And we talked a little bit about that talked about what an unfettered EY competitor would look like and due to the professional services industry. And then we also talked a little bit about what EY was as a canary in the coal mine, if you will, about yeah. the, the business conditions. Well, in the last couple of weeks, the deal failed, but not for any of the reasons one would think. The fact of the matter is, the most powerful arm of the E&Y ecosystem, if you will, because these big firms are nothing more than a conglomeration of national firms coming together, was derailed by the U.S., by the CEO of, of E&Y, some powerful partners still working at the firm and probably even more powerful partners that are retired from the yeah. firm. That, said, that was an interesting piece in that. It was the retirees were a big voice in, in shutting it down. Yeah. And they said, nope, deal's not going through. Yeah. And, you know, for context, I, I read that I think the U.S. operations represent 40% of the revenue of the global firm. So they obviously have, like you said, have a big voice. So they killed the deal. I think they said it cost them $600 million. You know, that's how much they'd spent on the deal, you know, to get it to that point. I want to read a quote. For me, this quote basically sums up 
everything. And, and it's from the article dated April 20th, EY confronts slowing growth after breakup deal fails. And literally within the first sentence, there's a quote from a senior executive whose name is Steve Payne. He's the America's deputy managing principal. And the quote is, we need to get every hour we can get our hands on. Bill clients every hour we can get our hands on. That's the quote. Can you believe that quote? Yeah. Oh, I can believe it for sure. I've heard those words in many a firm. We need to do, here's the full quote. We need to do a much better job in billing every hour we can get our hands on. You know, for me, that quote, basically, that's why I kind of joked it's an implosion. It's not an implosion, right? That's super, being super extreme. In fact, you know, their business has been not even necessarily declining this year. I think it's actually, if I read the article right, it's saying that their growth in the U.S. has been slowing each month this year, but they're still growing. But anyway, that quote, though, this gave me heartburn because there was like so many levels in that quote and this whole thing that makes me just, my gosh. So the first thing is, it just struck me as, okay, that you're just sending the market a signal that you're not at all innovative. You know, as Rita McGrath pointed out in our last podcast, they're clinging to a 500-year-old business model, right? The billable hour. So that's the first message you're sending is like, we're not an innovative company. All we do is just bill time to clients. Okay. The second thing that's probably more pressing is you're basically telling everyone you're not client-centric, you know, so everything that Fred Reichel talked to us about customer love, throw that out the window because I don't feel any love when you're basically saying you just want to use me as a cash funnel to rebuild the $600 million you lost and line the pockets of your, which is how I read it. That's not, that's, I mean, I'm being overly flippant, but that's, that's how it comes off. And then the whole deal is, is tells me you're not strategic, meaning that like, I don't think you could bungle something worse than this than to say, you're going to make all this, all this, this public news about how you're going to split this firm. And, you know, you're going to take the consulting from IPO and all the things that's going to do, it's going to let you open up the consulting business to consult, you know, your audit clients who you can't serve right now. It's all better for the client. Okay. And you blew $600 million. You couldn't figure that you couldn't figure out that this was going to die you know, for 10 million or 20 million or whatever. <laughs> like, gosh. like, so anyway, the, the message to me, it all came, that one quote, like crystallized at all. I was like, oh my gosh, like that to me said everything I would need to know as a client. Like if I'm already working with you, I better take a good hard look at whether I want to keep working with you because you know, you are not showing me any love in this deal. This whole thing doesn't show me any lo- love as a client. What's Am I being too blase? Is blase the right word? Not at all. You know, as a as a buyer of professional services, when you see a comment like that, it looks panic. You're yeah. out of control. You're desperate. And I think buyers can react to that in two ways. One is, you know, I'm not touching you with a 10-foot hole because I'm not going to trust that you're billing me accurately, right? Yeah. Yeah. Fair point. He can go to that level. Yeah. And and the second reaction is, oh, they're desperate. I can get, you know, some work done maybe at a discounted rate because I trust that their consultants are talented, but they need some money. So I have this project sitting over here. Maybe I can get it at, you know, seventy five cents on the dollar or something. I I, I don't yeah. know. But no. as as a buyer, you you think about those those types of things. Either way, E and Y is in a weakened negotiating position. Yeah. And your point, I mean, obviously super successful company, you know, they've been growing for, for decades, right? I mean, I, I don't remember the numbers in here. If I have them handy, I'll see if I can find it. $45 billion firm, right? So super successful firm. So clearly they have, they have lots of really strong client relationships, clients that trust them implicitly and stuff like this probably won't even 
bother them at all because they'll say, well, I, I don't, you know, it doesn't matter to me what the managing director says. All I care about is the relationship I have with my audit lead, my consulting partner, exactly. or whoever. And so, so it's all oh, that's irrelevant to me. That's just noise on the edges of the system. It doesn't matter. And so I think we, we should be, you know, cognizant of that. We, we got a little bit in the weeds, but just real, pretty quickly, like, why did we talk about this? Let's step back for a second. Why does this matter to firms? Like, why is it important to maybe take a few minutes and read some of these? Because these? I do think there's some learnings here. Well, this may be Jeff McKay's bias and my personality being reflected. But as a, a CMO and as, as a consultant, and I think this is probably more relevant to these large firms, but it has applicability to, you know, mid-sized firms as well. When you have these strategic initiatives, it's so important to think through the upside outcomes and the downside outcomes and have contingencies for them. Yeah. In this situation, going back to uh, Rita McGrath, my sense is that E&Y had assumptions that became facts. Oh, yeah. And they started to operate as if certain things were true and they were not. And that kind of puts them at risk. Any growth initiative or any kind of outreach, I think the CMO's responsibility is to think through the ramifications of a downside outcome. And how do you, for lack of a better word, spin the story in a positive way? And and how do you shape the story on the front end so that you have strategic flexibility on the back end. Yeah. Right. I think it's really important for firms to kind of hedge, if you will, potential outcomes, you know, more yeah. if statements, if we do this, this could happen. If not, this could happen. Both could be positive. Right. But if you're like, oh, we're going, you know, this is going to be the greatest thing since sliced bread and then it doesn't happen your brand's going to take a hit. And yeah. I suspect there probably are some frustrated people within E&Y that are, have lost confidence in leadership and are saying, is this the place I want to be? And is there a better place that has their house in order that would value somebody like me and give me a bump and make me partner or, or whatever else? Whatever. Yeah. So, so I wouldn't be surprised if headhunters are are picking through Ian Why Not right now and trying to take some of its best people. Well, that was certainly the concerns expressed by some of the European partners in the articles. There was something else I thought that was interesting, and then we'll move on. Was shortly after the deal was scuttled. Is that the right word? Scuttled. They cut three thousand U.S. jobs. You know, five percent of the U.S. workforce. So quickly went into cost cutting mode, which is kind of interesting. But there was a quote in there from one of the senior leaders that said, you know, this has nothing to do with Everest cost. That was the name that they gave in the split based upon the underlying performance of our business, which actually I think as a, if I were a staffer, that's actually even a little bit more concerning, right? It's like, okay, on the one hand, like if you waved your hand and said, well, you know, yeah, we, we took a big hit on this, but it's in the background, we're going to go forward. But when you say, well, no, we actually have some fundamental problems in the business, well, then it's like, well, wait, what? You know, like, so, uh, and of course, then the article went on to say that staffers didn't necessarily believe that, but I don't think it matters. But I, I think your points are really good ones, which is just, you know, if you're going into a big strategic initiative and it's fairly public, especially maybe most importantly visible to clients, you better have an understanding of the di different directions this could go and how you're going to handle them depending on what does happen. Because there's always unknown, as, as Rita McGrath pointed out, you're always planning into the unknown to some extent. And you can't assume that what you think is going to happen is going to happen. 
So maybe that's the lesson learned. Anything else you want to say about this? Because I mean, we could we did a whole episode on this. Oddly enough, I think many of the things that you predicted might happen ended up happening. <laughs> so you probably just redate it post facto. <laughs> well, that's the advantage of being older and having lived through some of these. But yeah, it brings please. us back to the controlled implosion. Of yes. Sometimes you can just see, I see them planting those explosives. You really shouldn't put those explosives right there. Well, you know, I I come back to your point, like what's in it for the client? Like, I don't know. I just come back to Fred's comments. I don't know. Fred's comments, I I thought were really, really great ones for any firm leader to hear. Just like, do we love our clients? How does this help the client? And I'm not so sure that this thing from the outset ever really helped the client as much as the story was being represented that it would. And, and, and when that happens, everything kind of goes south, I think sometimes. but I don't think this was ever yeah. about the client. Not at all. No, it wasn't about the client at all. It was all about the partners and a payday. Yeah. And yeah. you call me yeah. a cynic, but that's what it looks like to me. And, well, and- there's a line in one of those articles, by the way, I, I just found it. And it was basically, um, it said that they were going to split the firm, raise IPO money from the consulting arm, use some of the funds from that capital raise to pay the partners that stayed with the audit firm. So timeout, how is that in the best interest of the clients of the new consulting firm? How is it in the best interest of the shareholders of the new consulting firm? It's not in their interest at all. So basically like, to your point, I'm all about the client. And so when you get that far afield, smell is kind of greedy, things go so badly sometimes. Well, E&Y sells to sophisticated buyers, right? Their clients are smart people. And I think those smart people see that. And it's why those individual relationships are so important and those relationship managing partners, their job is to shield their clients from all that noise that's going on within the firm. And I bet you Ian Wise relationship managers did yeoman's work on that front. And that's probably the thing that will shield the firm and its brand from much worse damage than it's sustaining from a Wall Street Journal article. Yeah, no, I think you're 100% right. I think in the in the long term, this will probably be a, a minor blip and will hardly be remembered. But uh, it's a lot more fun to talk about it like it's an implosion though, right? So anyway, <laughs> so even though it's not... All right, let's shift gears. Let's talk about Google, our good friends at Google. Again, this article is a couple weeks old, but but it's basically like the article was an interview that the CEO gave Sundar Pichai to the Wall Street Journal. And what he was talking about in the article was that Google is going to introduce an AI-driven chat type functionality into their search engine. So they're going to take some of the AI chat functionality they're, they're building in BART, which is sort of their chat GPT response, and they're going to fold it into their how their search engine functions. I think this is actually really important for firms. I think there's a lot of repercussions to what's going on as it relates to conversational generative AI-based chat through ChatGPT, now through Bing with Microsoft, and then eventually with through Google. I think it changes buying behavior, potentially the, the buying process a little bit, how clients look for answers on how to solve problems and find you know, expertise and find experts to solve those problems. So I think it's both threat and opportunity. I think it's potentially an existential threat for firms that rely heavily on search as a conduit to new clients, because I think that the search 
model is changing, but it also is an opportunity because obviously search is changing. So it creates a new way to play there. So happy to go down my, my thoughts in any one of those directions. But but before I do, what, what's your thoughts? What do you see here? And what else jumps to the top of your head? For me, this is a fun time because we don't know what's going to happen. Yeah. So it's an opportunity to go back and rethink a lot of what we've been doing and how we've been doing it, why we've been doing it. And I don't have any answers, but I think the thing that needs to be happening right now is not just answers, but more questions. Yeah. What if, what could, what might, would be great questions for firms to be asking themselves about what's the possibility that exists here for us and getting unfettered from the past and how things were were done. It still comes down to client issues and solving those issues with really smart people. So I think firms can embrace this in a number of different ways. Yeah, to build on what you said, I think that to me, what's interesting is how it can change the way that digital buying behavior works. And I'll kind of just give a little bit of a mini story in a way, which is I've played around with a lot of these tools, like I'm sure many of our listeners have. And one of the things I've found probably most interesting about it is that you think about a traditional search experience, and I describe that as a discrete experience. Every search that you make is a discrete outcome, and there's a collection of options for you to choose from. And you're scanning those options and deciding which one of these seems the most close to what I'm looking for. And then you'll click through one and maybe read it. Maybe you'll back out through another one. Maybe you'll adjust your search. But when you adjust your search, it's a second discrete experience. But a chat-based search functionality is not. It's a dialogue. And that dialogue is self-contained. It doesn't take you out of that dialogue often unless you specifically ask for it, especially with Bing or ChatGPT. So if you're asking questions and that, that way clients do, how do I solve this problem? How do I improve board engagement? How do I become a more purpose-driven company? How do I improve employee engagement, right? You're asking those questions. It's sort of like it's taking the world's knowledge to the best of its ability and summarizing it. And then you're having a conversation with this intermediary, right? So I think it just changes the nature of how clients buy. And to your point, I think it's like, I don't want to be an alarmist, but I think that your phrase of what if is a great one. It's like, what if buying behavior changes in this way? What if clients spend much more time with a conversational chatbot to, to, to work, research their problems and to derive solutions? What does that mean to how we market our thought leadership initiatives, whatever it is? So I do think it's a great time to kind of ask those questions because there's no doubt. The other thing I'll say is I've, you know, having spent time with, you know, what's interesting about Bing is if you look at the Bing instance on this, if you do a search query in, in the new Bing, you can run that query with the chatbot, with a general search, with a news feed, with an image search, a video search. So kind of like you can do now, it's sort of just incorporated in that layer of options. And what's interesting is that the results look totally different, right? So if you if you run a traditional search for something you're interested in, and then you flip it over to a chat conversation, the, the sources it's pulling from don't always align. So there's definitely a, a, a change afoot potentially in terms of how you're getting found online. And so I think that's something you're just going to have to, like you said, scenario play here. Say, what if it works this way? What if it works that? But while keeping doing what you're doing. So crazy interesting, lots more going on there. And I think it's a thing you just got to keep your eyes on too, in terms of you know how it affects how clients behave and how they learn especially in the early stages of the buying process. So, If I were a CMO, I'd be focusing um, my energies in, in two areas. 
One, I would go back and re-examine that complex B2B buyer's journey. And what's going on at each stage of that buying process? Where is the friction within that? And begin looking at ways to attack that friction, either with AI on my own systems or using AI in some way on a Bing or some other search engine or BARD, whatever it's going to be. But going back and begin fresh and whiteboarding that. What assumptions have become facts that we need to yeah. that we need to go back and, and treat them as assumptions and instead of fact and, and rethink this. And the second area, and firms are probably doing this, but not doing it intentionally. When there's this injection of technology, I always feel like it needs to be balanced by humanity in relationship. And I would rethink how I'm managing relationships with clients and prospects and what are the new opportunities that exist in light of these changes. So those are the two areas where I would be focusing. Yeah, I really like I like both of them a lot. I like the first one, and I, I know t- t- what more than one of our clients have sort of studies of that nature going. And what I really like is that it's not just whiteboarding, right? They're actually, you know, they're working with firms that are doing deep dive discovery sessions with clients to look at kind of like how they're going through their buying process firsthand to the extent you can observe it. And we've heard from people like, you know, Matthew Dixon, who did observe, you know, late stage sales conversations, you know, directly through Zoom and and codified that. So I I think that there's an opportunity to make it more than a dialogue, an internal dialogue. Not not saying that's what you were hinting, suggesting is done, but I think that's, I wanted to just kind of point that out. I think that um, I agree with you. I think that's a great place to start because it has, I mean, we've been, last four years, there's just been a lot of like, accelerated change in buying behavior. And I think it's you know good to step back and say, wait a minute, what's really going on here and how is it changing? You know, what's not changing too, right? Like what's not going to change? And to your point, I think that leads into the relationship piece. How do you use technology to accelerate or improve relationships and how are we doing enough of and how frequently we, we miss the mark? I'll just put it that way, you know, when we could do so much better. You're listening to Rattle and Pedal, divergent thoughts on growing your professional services firm. Your hosts are Jason Malicki, Principal of Rattleback, the marketing agency for professional services firms, and Jeff McKay, former CMO and founder of strategy consultancy, Prudent Pedal. If you find this podcast helpful, please help us by telling a friend and rating us on iTunes. Thank you. Now back to Jason and Jeff. Okay, last story of the day is a little bit out of our normal zone, right? We're going to talk about beer. So we're going to talk about Bud Light. If you haven't seen it in the news, Bud Light's been under a lot of scrutiny lately. I'm not going to point to a single article about this. There's plenty of them on the Wall Street Journal and other sources about what happened. I'll do my best to describe from what I can what happened. Bud Light's been under scrutiny for uh, an influencer tie-in they did. So they basically did a sponsorship deal with an influencer who's or a transgender female. I apologize. I forget her name. What's her name? Dylan Mulvaney. Dylan Mulvaney. So Dylan Mulvaney has been documenting his transition from over a year into a woman and Bud Light did a tie-in with her that way they sent a personalized can with with her face on it and then she shared it on Twitter, I think Twitter, because she's got millions of social media followers and they've just 
kind of been under attack, I guess, from people who were offended by the decision and the choice they made to sort of like spotlight a, a transgender individual in that transition. Where, where do you want to start? I guess, you know, because there's the, there's the marketing piece of this is like why they did this from a marketing perspective, or at least from the best I can discern it. And then there's the the backlash and, and sort of like political firestorm that they've walked into as a result of this and then their response to it. So I think any one of those things can be an interesting thing just to kind of talk through for listeners. This is going to be a marketing case study for years to come, different, but akin to brands like Coke changing its recipe and following, you know, research that said people like that and realizing that they didn't. There's a, a couple of different takes on this that I think are in part important for professional services firms, even though this is a consumer brand. I don't think I'll enumerate these because I'm not sure how many will come out. The first thing is we never know how a market is going to react to our marketing messages. We do our best to kind of understand our our markets and put messages out to them. And it's important to, to understand that once that message is out there, it's out of your control. And we kind of talked about that in the E and Y story. Firms need to understand that. And there's probably the case study will question whether or not Bud Light understood its core market or did not, but its core market reacted negatively to one of many messages that it puts out in the market. And why did they react? And why did they react so strongly at this moment? I don't think Bud Light necessarily anticipated that reaction. Yeah, I, I, I think that's 100% clear, right? Like there's there, I think that they were shocked a little bit by, by how it played out. You just got the sense because some of the messages that came out, there were some pretty aggressive attacks, right? There was like notable media figures calling for boycotts, social media, that kind of stuff, because they were really like upset and offended by the, this, this tie-in. But the response that came from the, the CEO of Bud Light, or, or I guess from the CEO of Anheuser-Busch, didn't seem to be very coherent and seemed kind of confusing, which gave you the sense that they really weren't prepared and that they were sort of scrambling to come up with how, how do they explain what's going on. From a marketing perspective, I think the one thing I'll just point out and I, and I, is, is that like there was an interview given online by a vice president of marketing that had nothing to do with this particular tactical, this marketing tie-in that they had done. It was more about kind of a, a Super Bowl campaign they had run and some of what they were doing that, that ended up being kind of at the heart of a lot of this dialogue, online dialogue from what I understand. But it, she pointed out a couple of things I thought were interesting is she said the brand had been in decline, their sales had been down for a really long time. And the chosen remedy was to say, well, we need to attract, you know, young drinkers to come and drink this brand or there'll be no future for Bud Light. That was the quote. So I think, you know, the thing we don't know as external voices, of course, is how they explored all other options that they could do to fix flagging sales, right? You know, because there could be a whole host of reasons why that's going on beyond just our ability to attract a new consumer. So they sort of went to the side and said, well, we need to attract another type of consumer, another set of consumer, and we need to kind of reinvent this brand. And whether or not that's the right choice, I, I have absolutely no idea. Other than that was the the chosen remedy. And then that, like you said, that core customer felt alienated because they didn't feel like that they were speaking to them anymore. And maybe that was fully, I mean, I would assume they knew that that, that was the case going in, that they're 
you know, attracting a new consumer segment and that old one might, or not old one, but the, the core one might feel differently or feel like it doesn't speak to them anymore. The brand doesn't speak to them anymore. So I don't know if I made any sense there, but. Well, I, I, I think that made sense. Anheuser-Busch is a very sophisticated marketing yep. organization and they have probably some of the best advisors to that brand researching these markets and and segmenting them and understanding the attributes of of all of those those markets and when you look at demographics and social trends it probably seemed like a low risk kind of outreach that would pay dividends if not on the purchase of the brand for corporate Anheuser-Busch, whether that's in meeting some of the expectations of their employees or future employees, their corporate social responsibility arm and in their position within, you know, the the corporate ecosystem. There were reasons to do an ad like that other than just going after a particular segment. Because yeah, fair point. To, to say, hey, we're doing this ad to go after a, a transgender segment, which is 0.00, I don't know. It's, it's four a small, it's a small right, slice right. of the- That's, of the, that's not the segment yeah. that's going to move <laughs> beer yeah. sales. Yeah. But people um, that that issue is important to was, was the intended audience yeah. of that. Where things got complicated is there was a convergence, I think, of environmental conditions. This wasn't the, the first ad from a major company using Dylan Mulvaney as a, a spokesperson. And the right saw an opportunity here to finally speak up because Budweiser was a commodity if you will. There were brand alternatives. Purchasers of, of that type of beer could easily substitute with, you know, a Coors or a Miller or, you know, some something else. And as a result of that, I think there was blood in the water. And they said, this is the time to strike. And they struck. Yeah, I think, it, you know, it, it, the, the interesting thing about it, there was a really nice opinion piece in the journal about that piece of it in the sense of like, Historically, consumer boycotts of, of brands for any any reason, you know, hasn't really been a long term blip on sales for either the, the 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 brand that's being boycotted or the alternative brand. So so it sort of ends up sort of just normalizing itself out, sort of forgotten within a few months. Remains to be seen, you know, how it all plays out. Like, does it end up, you know, reversing the sales trend over time? Does the sales decline continue? I mean, some of that is kind of probably broader than than the brand, and maybe even broader than the category. You know, so there's there's all kinds of things going on there. But I think it's going to be, you know, one of those things where you just don't know really the impact of any of this. You know, maybe for for a while, because even though, like, I was reading an article in the journal about this it was an opinion piece, and they had some pretty good data in there about things like there was a poll that was run that said on April first, five point seven percent of respondents. This was run by YouGov said that they would consider buying Bud Light, and then by April 23rd, 4%. So they lost almost two percentage points of intent there, right? But that's meaningless intent, right? It's like, and it's not even intent, it's consideration. 
you know? So it's like, you, really, it's hard sales that really are going to matter in the end for the firm and the brand, not the firm, the company and the brand, which I guess only time will tell whether or not the direction that they're going is going to work for them. I think there's a couple of important lessons here. Yeah. One is you have to understand your core market, what's important to them. Love your customers, and, right? Right, right. Fr- Fred Reich got its heart. Love your customers. You have to love and, and understand your customers. And we could talk for hours on segmentation and, and understanding, but that's not a one and done research project, or it's not even a, a research project necessarily. It's about loving, to what you said, loving your customers and being in connection with them, yeah. right? They're not lab rats. They're people. <laughs> you, you, you just can't hands. endlessly research them and, and take that because we learned that with new code, right? There's emotional connections to brands, maybe not so much so in B2B, but there's lessons that cut across those. So don't mistake market research with a deep understanding of your your core customer. The more important thing, again, going back to our EMY story, is how do you respond to the market's response? And I think Anheuser-Busch is just back themselves into a corner here. And maybe the lessons won't be marketing as much as they will be public relations because they came out of the gate when this initial kind of flurry of of feedback came out saying, yes, we did engage Dylan Mulvaney and we're proud of that choice. Then they came out and said, well, you know, no, we really didn't. This was, you know, a lower level marketer making these decisions. We weren't aware of them. So they tried to backtrack from that. Then they put out kind of all American commercial with the Clydesdale that any other time probably would have gone over really well, but it was received at, you know, with cynicism and that it was nothing more than a a cheap way to kind of placate their There was a hollow, it was very hollow. Yeah. Then, yeah. then the VP of marketing that was quote unquote leading this takes a leave of absence. And then a week later, the, I don't know if it was the CMO or the global head of the brand lost his job as well. Well, I, yeah. I don't know that he lost it. He's on leave of absence as well. As well. And my sense is Anheuser's Bush strategy is to, just go quiet and hope this passes. I think they realize every move they've made up to this point has exacerbated it, uh-huh. whether it was well-intentioned or not, has exacerbated the the issue. And they're betting on the market beginning to forget and move on. Yeah, time heals all wounds, right? It's kind of like that message of that one opinion piece in the journal that I shared where he said boycotts, or he or she, I don't remember the author, um, said boycotts rarely have long-term effects on sales, so just weather the storm kind of a thing. It also comes back to some of our comments on EY in a sense. Like, I mean, I, yeah, I was a little bit, uh, I, I describing it as an implosion, kind of almost purposely to kind of get a little bit of excitement around it. But at the end of the day, I think just time is going to, it's going to be forgotten. Clients will make their decision to work with EY for, for much different reasons than whether they did a split up or not on what they said in a journal article, right? So in the long run, you know, 
maybe the lesson is go back to Fred Reichelt's timeless lesson, love your customers and seek to do things in their best interests all the time. And, and usually things work out the right way for you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> simple, simple concept. Well, in terms of professional services firms, I, w- I would give this advice. We are in bizarre times in our country and the country is divided in many different ways. And when you make these strategic choices that may be clear to you, they may be clear in another way to your core market. And you have to think through what that looks like. But when you make these these choices in these political waters, I believe the key is to be true to yourselves. If you believe, whether it's a left or a right political perspective, and you choose to wade into those waters, you have to dive into those waters and you have to go. You have to be true to to your belief systems and not be wishy-washy or use those views as marketing campaigns. They need to come out of, of who you are as a firm. And that's where firms go awry. They, they don't know who they are or they're using these, these opportunities for short-term gains instead of really building and reinforcing a legacy firm with a, a way of being. So know yourself before you wade into these waters and then I think you can wade into them more confidently. Yeah, those are, those are good words of advice. It kind of comes down to know yourself, love your customers, right? That's an excellent way of saying it. A, yeah. a, in Jason Maliki fashion, what a great summary. All right, let's shut it down. Thanks, Jeff. It was fun to go behind the headlines, and uh, we'll talk next week. See you, buddy. Thank you for listening to Rattle and Pedal, divergent thoughts on marketing and growing professional services firms. Find content related to this episode at rattleandpedal.com. Rattle and Pedal is also available on iTunes and Stitcher.